0: counted among the outlaws. He said, come, follow me. People from all walks of life since have been becoming outlaws. Welcome to another episode of Becoming Outlaws, which engages celebrities, scholars, diverse voices, in candid conversations about following Jesus, defying societal norms, and exploring profound, and sometimes not so profound, questions of faith. Let me ask you this. Have you ever had a day or a moment where you stop and thought, you know, what's this all about? What's my life about? Or why does it matter? Why does anything matter? Uh, I have those thoughts. Matter of fact, I think I had them all just this morning. Um, If you have, you're pondering philosophical questions. Philosophical questions can lead to theological questions. Is there a God? If so, does that give meaning and purpose to my life? If there isn't a God, do is there purpose at all? Well, that's sort of what we're exploring today, sort of. In the early to mid-1800s, there was a renowned philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, and he had a mission. In his view, in his day, the church had become weak, flabby, inconsequential and that being a Christian at that time had become more of a cultural heritage than an actual spiritual reality. Sound familiar? Things haven't changed much. He saw himself as a missionary, but not to some foreign tribe, uh, heathens out you know across the globe. No, he saw himself as a missionary to the Christians, to the Christian church who've lost their way. Well, on today's episode, We're gonna discuss Kierkegaard's view on the changelessness of God. And we need help doing that. So we have Craig A. Hefner, PhD from Wheaton College Graduate School. He's the head of school at Covenant in Huntington, West Virginia. His work has appeared in publications such as the International Journey of Systematic Theology and the Oxford Handbook of the Bible in America and others. And he just released Kierkegaard and the changelessness of God, a modern defense of classical immutability. That was a mouthful, but he's going to help us define it. Uh, Welcome.
1: He asked me to call him Craig, I'll try, but. Please do. Welcome Craig. Thank you, Ken, for having me on your show. Yeah,
0: I'm looking forward to this one. This one's going to be. I like to be intellectually stimulated, um, you know. But I do have my limits. We're going to see if I can, if I can keep up with this one. <laughs> I hope I can. I hope I can uh, provide what you're looking for here. <laughs> so, sorry. So, for the philosopher, the people who know their philosophy mm-hmm. uh, and the philosophers of the world, that's a uh, a common name to have heard. For others, it may be a new one. Yes. What makes this guy stand out?
1: Amongst kind of the crowd of philosophers, philosophers. yeah, that's a good question. Um, anybody who's read read him will know that he stands out right away because he writes very differently from your uh, your average run of the mill philosopher, as it were. And so um, he he's going to mostly stand out because, as you said in your intro, right? He's 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 sometimes called the father of existentialism. Uh, because he's one of the first to really be asking those kinds of questions that you asked does anything matter? What's the point of life? Does my life have any meaning? Um, if, if there's a God, does that change, you know, anything about my life and meaning? And so he, he asks existential questions a lot um, that, that makes him stand out. And so if you, if you read a lot of philosophers, a lot of them are in the business of defining things of thinking about um, abstract ideas, providing definitions and arguments and and things like that, which I find very fascinating and um, important as well. But what you find in Kierkegaard is somebody who's asking questions like, what should I do? I need one thing to sink my life into. And what should it be? And does it matter? And how should I think about uh, my life over time? And so a very existential um, oriented thinker.
0: And let's define existential.
1: Yeah. Um, Boy, I wish that I could do that. Because
0: um, <laughs> he's considered the father of existentialism.
1: Yes, he is oftentimes called that. And, you know, what is misleading about that for Christians and and um, is, is in a lot of ways that the later existentialist thinkers thinking about like Jean-Paul Sartre and Heidegger um, and uh, even Nietzsche maybe and people like this are generally very secular atheistic type existentialist right so it's it goes that way very quickly so sometimes it's misleading because we end up lumping kierkegaard in with all of those thinkers who who really are asking similar questions to him but are very much from a non-christian really non-religious at all point of view so he's different because he's an existentialist christian Um, but to define existentialism i i I think one of the, the best definitions of it is just that it's It's a philosophical tradition that's concerned about the individual and your, and existence and those kinds of questions. And so the word itself has this idea, you know, existential has this idea of exiting. And so it's almost like you're exiting yourself and reflecting back on yourself. And that, and so existentialism is kind of, is, is really, is self, is a self-reflective kind of mode of philosophy. So it asks questions about who am I? What's the point of life? Um, ask questions about freedom and about finitude and what do we do with the fact that nothing lasts forever. And so kind of that self-reflective mode of thinking is, is, is um, characteristic of existentialism.
0: Okay. And your book focuses on one of his topics. So he's considered a Christian philosopher. Right. Which makes him different, right? So in philosophy, you mentioned a lot of them come from an atheist view. Do the, Does their philosophical thought typically take these guys to an atheist place? Or are they starting um, in kind of there's no meaning beyond the material? There isn't a spiritual intelligence. And then they kind of try to think their way to back that up. How does that work typically with these guys?
1: Yeah, it's. I think it's going to vary um, in a lot of ways. But at a really like broad stroke level, I think it would be more like materialism is the standard point of view. And so what we're going to do, it's, it's almost more, it, if you're talking about your sec- secular existentialist kind of post Kierkegaard, they are, they are thinking through the implications um, of what it would mean to live in a universe with no meaning and no God. And do, and, do, my, okay, go ahead. I talked
0: to different, like, um, scientist on here biologist or whatever and it Mm -hmm. seems like the science world starts with a conclusion like they're going to eliminate spirituality and then see what they can figure out so even if it leads to a spiritual answer they don't go there and they just keep trying to come up with a natural answer right so that's what i'm wondering if the vibe of philosophy even with christians has a little bit of negative tone because it always seems a lot of atheists just uh do these guys ever or any of the historical philosophers, do they come to at least to a deist position where this does lead to because of moral issues, ethical standards, there must have been or just the origins of the universe or whatever do they come to a point where there must be something beyond the material, spiritual, but it's just not knowable and if it's a God of some sort, mm-hmm. it's not personal.
1: yeah it's yeah orgy if you're going zoom back out to just philosophy in general and not just existentialists, I think that would definitely be the case, right? You would find a lot of philosophers pre-Christian and post-Christian who are not at all, um, you know, reading the Bible and thinking about the Bible in philosophical ways, but just doing philosophy in general, they, they will oftentimes come to a conclusion that like, well, there can't just be, um, you know, there can't, there, Like, why is anything here as opposed to nothing at all? Right. That's a great philosophical question. And that those kinds of questions have led people to say, well, it makes a lot of sense that I don't know who he is or what is involved, but there must be something like a being beyond um, this universe just to explain how things got here in the first place. So philosophers will oftentimes get there. Right. And they might not go all the way into full blown Christianity at that point, Kierkegaard does, right? Yeah. So he doesn't stop there. But um, certainly a lot of philosophers would at least get to a deist position. Um, what
0: made Kierkegaard different and that we know about him and that led him not only to a belief in something like a deist would, <clears throat> but a personal God. And then not only a personal God, but considers himself a Christian, Mm -hmm. which means he then goes a whole step further in that faith in Christ, the son of God brings him salvation and him as a person, as a sinner. that goes so far beyond a lot of philosophers. What, what drives him to that area?
1: I mean, I think he would just say that it was faith that drove him to that area. I don't, so I don't know that there's as much for him, a philosophical argument that got him there. He is more thinking out the implications of Christian faith. So I think he's beginning with the assumption in a lot of ways that the Christian faith is true. Now let me think about the world around me in light of that. Uh, That's how I see him thinking about things anyways. I mean, he, in doing that, you make a kind of argument for it, right? Because you end up showing how, I, I think as he does, like the way we live life would, would be bent towards despair if there weren't a God. And if that God didn't offer forgiveness and and so it gets to the point where you really need Christianity as the answer um so he kind of makes his fil- his philosophy system leaves this hole that Christianity perfectly fills i guess yeah. is one way to put it but um i think he just begins with a lot of those assumptions right. um, and he, you know he just believes that god became man and that we need to think through what the meaning of existence is in light of that
0: um this will be part of a history question with uh, philosophy guys as well, but in my looking into Kierkegaard for this talk, uh, you know, I saw where his dad felt guilty over denouncing God or what he believes, yeah. believes is a heretical statement when he was younger. So he always felt he was cursed and had this weird idea yeah. that all of his children would die at the age or before Christ did at 33 years old. So his yeah. children grew up thinking their longevity at a max was 33. Correct. So in my view, that's like, if you have a disease or something where you know you're terminal or you have a life limit, you think more spiritually, you think more philosophy, you think more, why am I here? What's my purpose? What is beyond this? You figure it out. Cause you, you're not like, well, I have to like 90. I'll figure that out when I'm 89. That's right. You're yeah. figuring it out young. And then if you're a thinker, that factors in. So my question is, I can see where he would be thinking way more like past his life and spiritual things, maybe than your typical person.
1: You're but in right. the
0: days of Socrates or even Nietzsche or whatever, was the life expectancy? Did that play a difference? Because I'm doing it for my modern thing, where well we can all live about 85, 90 years mm-hmm. or whatever. Right. But if you're in a culture where you only live to 35 anyway,
1: did they all think that way? That's a good, that's an interesting question. I don't know that I could speak to that with any confidence. I mean, it would be <laughs> obviously true that life expectancy um, was lower in Kierkegaard's in Kierkegaard's day, much much even aside from the fact that he and his family thought they were cursed and all doomed to die young uh, in addition, right? So life expectancy was already um, quite low. I mean, when you read some of the other key philosophers in Kierkegaard's time, it would be oftentimes that they would just, be living about. And then they would have some, they would drink water and get sick and be gone. And (laughs) so they just, they lived with that, right. That, that, that there were diseases and illnesses floating around. They could hardly do anything about. And and in fact, Kierkegaard himself dies rather, rather young. Um, uh, He's 1813 to 1855. So I don't know that I could do the math 40 something. Um, He, um, and he just gets sick suddenly and we don't really know from what. And, he passes out on the street and then they take him to a hospital and a few days later he's, he dies. And that's just, they lived with that as a more normal thing yeah. than we are used to. So certainly that raises the, the question. I, I think, um, you know, I could kind of spin back to your, your earlier question as like in, in, combine these two, right. So in thinking about the fact that he did, you're, you're exactly right. And that's, that played a heavy role in his mind that he thought Kierkegaard actually believed his father was cursed. And believed that he was doomed to die and the specific thing was um his father thought he, that his children would all die before him um and so he was um and and he had there were seven seven kids and um indeed they did five of them had died and it was only Kierkegaard and his brother left and so you can start to imagine if you are that if you are Kierkegaard, soren the son you're thinking it might be true there's yeah. only Two of us left now. And when his father died, he actually like praised, he kind of like gave thanks to God for releasing him from the curse. I mean, he, in a lot of ways re- acted like he believed it was a very real thing.
0: And he wrote like it was real, right? He just like absolutely. at about 26 years old, he just writing like a
1: madman. Yeah. Cause he thought his time was, um, you know, running out. And so absolutely. And that does, I think you're right. That does maybe hurry up your, Spiritual journey. You have to think through the questions of what your life is about and what's going to matter after you die, like right now, because your life's wrapping up. Um, And so he thought about things like um, he explored a lot of different ways of living. So, what Kierkegaard is somewhat famous for is something called the stages on life's way. Uh, You may have encountered some of that in your research on Kierkegaard, but and and it's like a path of life that people tend to take. And he thinks it leads them toward eventually um, Christian faith, but um, people get stuck along the way at various stages. Now it's like he hurried through them all because he was thinking about his imminent death so much, but he thinks people start in something like an aesthetic stage where basically the categories are pleasure and enjoyment and trying as best you can to not be bored. And to make life fun and interesting, it's like a hedonist kind of lifestyle, and he thinks that's which kind is of where typically we the
0: Ameri- That's the current American
1: lifestyle, right? Absolutely, now. that's just the American lifestyle. Yeah. He would probably view the American lifestyle as essentially just extending the aesthetic stage for as long as possible, yeah. uh, trying not to, um, trying to make sure you have as much fun as you can, trying to make sure that you have as much pleasure as you can in this life, and just push off thinking about anything like death uh really forever if, if you can so that's the aesthetic stage right and he thinks eventually when you th- are an aesthetic if you're living to make life uh, about pleasure and fun you realize that it doesn't work eventually because eventually you get bored no matter what no matter how hard you try um to make things interesting and fun eventually it runs out of steam right they have a, it has a diminishing return over time so you can live this maximally just pleasure seeking life but it gets boring And, you know, you realize it's just another whatever, and it's not that fun anymore. And so you kind of run out of steam. So then you move, then you level up to the ethical stage where you say, okay, well, I'm going to live my life now in terms of right and wrong and like moral obligation and duty. So I'm going to get married. I'm going to invest in some, like, I'm going to commit back to my community and I'm going to be A good citizen and I'm going to follow through on duty. And that, that provides some meaning to your life. And some people reach that stage, right? They start to take their duties more seriously and they care about the community and they give back. But Kierkegaard thinks that even that stage runs out of steam eventually. And it's, this is where it gets to be really openly Christian because he says, well, the problem is, is that you, you can't live up to your own standard. And so you set this perfect ideal ethical thing that you're going to become and you can't but you have no concept of forgiveness because your whole life is based on moral duty and your failings and shortcomings of that moral duty are a crisis for you and so you need um the religious stage as he calls it where faith enters the scene and you experience forgiveness and you kind of move beyond just living out of moral duty but out of things like faith grace forgiveness and so forth so he that's a really short version of it, but everywhere in his writings, you see him working through these stages of maturity and it's kind of a spiritual journey to get to, um, what he would call Christian faith at the
0: end. Yeah. And in his view, if you don't make it to stage three, you haven't reached your fulfillment as a human.
1: That's right. And he would say that you're in despair, whether you know it or not. So, uh, at some level the aesthetic, um, person who is just seeking pleasure, they look like they're having a lot of fun. But underneath all that fun is actually a very deep seated despair uh, that they are maybe not even conscious of. Mm -hmm. But if you had, if they started to reflect more, they would realize that all their actions are fundamentally rooted in a despairing lifestyle.
0: Yeah, and he's absolutely right, right? I I mean, we're all looking for something, there's a hole that needs to be filled. We fill it with pleasure. We find out that doesn't work, or even celebrities. Well, then they—if it's not just for PR purposes, if it's real, then they're like, "Well, I need to give back. That'll make me fill that hole." And they give back, and they get involved and involved, and and then that becomes routine. Yep. And um, some of them never get out of that, and they overdose or they kill themselves at some right. point when they don't make stage three. It ends badly, Absolutely. but a lot of us never reach that level to realize we've done everything. Yeah. to know they're stage three or you'll see these turnaround where these those kinds of people are like man i found christ and um everything else was kind of meaningless
1: yeah what was i doing up to this point right yeah yeah and Kierkegaard probably put it more optimistically like well you were you were journeying through these stages not that you should like stay in the aesthetic stage for as long as possible but in some ways we're all born into the aesthetic stage i think is how Kierkegaard views it we just naturally start that way And by God's grace, we work our way up, hopefully.
0: And really, Scripture doesn't have a three-step stage like that, but it says we're predestined to be conformed into the image of Christ. Like we're all, as humans, predestined to end up in that relationship with Christ.
1: Yeah, right. However path
0: that takes. So that lines lines up pretty well.
1: That it does line up well, because it basically means, okay, you're actually made that way, like you're made for communion with Christ. So anything that's not that – if you, if you zoom in on it enough, you're going to find something misfiring. There's some kind of misrelation. There's some kind of problem. There's some kind of pathology underneath that that's not really being fully human. And and so we think that, but what's so fun about Kierkegaard is that he seems to take that beyond just like the, the rhetoric and the language of saying that. And he's like, no, really, if you examine human existence and the way people live their lives in really, really, specific detail you will see that indeed it it tends toward despair unless they have christian faith um and so he just he makes a strong case that christian faith is the only way to live a non-despairing human life in one of his areas which your book focuses on you call it
0: changelessness of god and Mm -hmm. i'm going to guess you went away from the word, uh, defined immutability because changelessness of God is easier on the brain, like a theological That's, term, but it's the doctrine true. of immutability. That's right. And, yeah. and what is that?
1: So it is, yeah, they're the same thing, right? Changelessness, immutability. It's just, um, uh, referring to the same thing, which is it's, it's pretty simply speaking, it's the doctrine that God does not change at all. Um, you could, Say it in more detail by saying he doesn't change in any way that would include, say, his knowledge, his will, his essence, um, his relationship to time, space, and, and, and any category that you can identify. Traditionally, Christian theologians have thought God can't change with respect to those things, mm-hmm. um, and so it gets complicated to explain how that could be. But in at some in some mysterious way, God can't uh, God can't change in any way. That's the doctrine of divine immutability.
0: So the, um, the initial comeback to that would be what about all over the New Testament where God repented or relented or he seems to have changed his mind or That's man right. barters with him. Uh, how about um, don't destroy that city if I can find these many righteous people? God's like, eh, okay. yeah, okay. And, and it goes on and then God, he, he uh, was mad or said. or he reflected and thought I shouldn't even have made mankind. There's right. such a screw up. Yeah. That sounds like God's changing.
1: It does. It does. Yeah. Those are the, those are the, those are the texts and, and just, you know, you could think of a whole number of examples of that, of things like that, that would suggest that it, it seems like God changes. So the traditional answer to that has been that it's not, and Kierkegaard affirms this, right? It's not God that's changing, but us that is changing in relation to God. And so you could say, you know, when he says like, well, if five five, uh, men repent from that city, I won't destroy it. And then it's like, oh, then he changes his mind and he decides not to. Well, really what's going on, I think we experience that as from our perspective, God 10 minutes ago was going to destroy the city. God now is not going to. But at a higher level, we could say God was always the God who did not want to destroy that city, you know. And it's they changed in relation to God and therefore they got to experience God differently. It's not that God changed his mind or that God mm-hmm. changed the way he was going to be towards them. Um, and I know that that's very hard to wrap our heads around, but obviously God isn't like us at all. So it's not going to be easy to understand, but he, he is able to, uh, he, he's he can't change at all, and in, and in some mysterious way, it's just us changing in relation to him. I feel
0: like, I don't know if this is a good example, it makes it sound like God's playing games, but I think maybe he draws knowledge, he teaches us a lesson knowing what he's gonna do ahead of time like a parent would, where yeah. with, a, like, like with the debating with God of how many people can be saved out of Sodom and Gomorrah or whatever, mm-hmm. it looks like the numbers keep going down because man looks merciful in that situation, where God right. was merciful to begin with, but he right. showed the punishment due and just so the human would understand. But it pulls the, it, for a human, it shows the justness of the punishment and it pulls out of them the mercy and empathy for their fellow man. That's right. When God allows them to go through that process
1: where God was already there from the beginning. Yeah, that's exactly and right. It, so and it looks what, like it's a barter situation. It does. So what, what Kiergaard added, and that this is great because that's precisely the kind of debate that has gone on for with Christians is to say, look, there's texts like James 117 that seem to suggest God doesn't change at all. And then there's texts like repentance narratives, and he wants he decides maybe I shouldn't have created man in the first place. And these texts seem to imply change. What do we do? Right. And it's and then that's where theology comes in and we try to think through those questions. But Kierkegaard has a way of changing, reframing that debate. Because what he does is he says, in in a more existential mode, that like you don't want God to change because if He does, then everything is changing in your life, yeah. and so that has a way of pulling um, um, pulling our minds to a different set of reasons for why we might want to say that God doesn't change. Uh, the the uh, when 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 I when you know we we're just talking about those repentance texts. It gets so abstract so quickly that you end up sometimes talking as if God is very far away from us and he's so unlike us because he doesn't change at all. And it gets really philosophical really quickly. And I'm OK with that. I, I, I think those arguments are basically right. But nonetheless, the effect of the doctrine ends up being God not changing is really hard to understand. And it reminds us of how God isn't like us at all. And it makes him seem very different and very far away and what Kierkegaard does is he flips that around and says, no, no, because for existential reasons, it's so wonderful that there is a, that there is something in the world universe that doesn't change. Yes, There's at least one thing because everything else is afflicted by change. And there's one thing that isn't, and that's where I'm going to, that's where I'm going to ground my identity. And that makes the doctrine of God's changelessness or immutability a lot more warm and applicable and pastoral um i try to argue also biblical in my book um because i think the bible tends to speak of god's changelessness in this more positive way um than than we're used to
0: you know what i was just thinking what's really
1: interesting is the new testament
0: speaking of uh jesus is that jesus is the same yesterday today and forever yet we know jesus changed he was a infant um Mm -hmm. then he's 12 years old in a temple and he's learning and growing in wisdom and um he became a man and his life progressed and changed Mm -hmm. but yet scripture says he never changed of course referring then
1: to god never changing that's right yes we i think we would want to say you know Jesus doesn't change in terms of his divine nature but his human nature is able to grow develop learn and all those yeah kinds of his things. whole body changed yeah that's right in
0: scripture he became his whole body became a resurrected glorified body that's completely changed that's right yeah but the the deity of Christ is clearly stated in that sentence because it's
1: does not change
0: it does not change
1: yeah it has never changed which is at some level a very hard to understand thing <laughs> to say yeah
0: how- and that would be, since you said that, that falls into, uh, actually, we're getting into the part that I don't, and I, I have a surface level understanding of Kierkegaard's show, sure. so, but it goes into the places I didn't like about, um, and I can tell you why, but sure. of Kierkegaard's view of uh, Christianity, actually, is when he gets into calling things the absurd, and I think that would fall under it, or uh, the leap of faith. Yes. So define those in terms of Kierkegaard.
1: Yeah, that's a yeah really interesting um, part of Kierkegaard. So he would he would and this maybe you'd you'd want to push back on this, and I, I'd actually understand why. Like he'll talk about the incarnation as being a paradox, and that doctrines of faith being a you know you have to at some point leap into faith, um, and so he almost is implying there uh, that there's not a rational case for that leap. You just have to leap and then it makes sense after you've leaped. So that makes him sound sort of like a um, uh, irrational and uh, the technical term is fideism where you just say, just have faith and don't ask any kind of philosophical questions. Um, And there, there's a whole lot of debate about whether Kierkegaard really meant those things in that way or what he meant by some of those comments. So I'll, I'll kind of give both sides. I mean, maybe he's just saying, the incarnation is absurd and a paradox um, that, that I would have problems with that too. On the other hand, he might be saying something like the incarnation cannot be really grasped and understood by human reason. And in that way, it is not a um, technical paradox in the sense that it's a, in, in the sense that it's irrational. It's just beyond human comprehension. Do you and think if he's, he's using
0: used- terms like absurd for almost like PR per- marketing purposes as opposed to saying a mystery? Uh,
1: per- yeah, perhaps. Um, yeah, the, it's more um punchy language and <laughs> it's more um, it's definitely characteristic of him in general, maybe to overstate things a little bit. Yeah. Um, it's also more modern language, right? So, you would definitely find like Traditional, like the church fathers and the reformers and the theologians of the past, would use the word mystery. Um, Kierkegaard is in the 19th century; he's much later than that, and so he favors words like paradox and absurd. And um, I think he means roughly the same thing, but um, but I can understand the pushback to that language.
0: Yeah. So in regards to his version. In explaining a leap of faith, for instance, was uh, Abraham's nearly sacrifice of Isaac. Can you put in a nutshell how he describes that as an example? As in terms of a leap of faith. In terms of a leap of faith, or or why? Yeah, why is he talking about it? What was his point?
1: So, his point is, uh, among many things in that book, it. You, it, might, it would be something like the, the ethical stage that we talked about where you're living in terms of moral duty and right and wrong he thinks that Abraham and Isaac in some ways throws a wrench into that system because on an ethical understanding of the world what Abraham is about to do makes no sense he's going to murder his son because God commanded him to do so and so Kiergaard wants to point out that the only way for Abraham to carry out that action is to have a leap of faith where he no longer is deciding everything in terms of the ethical, but actually understanding everything in terms of faith. And so only from the perspective of faith can what Abraham um, is about to do with Isaac make any sense. And I, I, mean, I think that's not entirely wrong, right? You, it, if, if somebody were to go murder their own child you would say that is wrong right and then but abraham is is this case of somebody from the perspective of faith it's understood differently right there's there's something special going on in this case and so it requires faith to make sense of abraham um i think that's that's what he has in mind so you can only really you can't make sense of abraham from a natural um, non-christian non-faith perspective
0: so here's my
1: um, soapbox on that. And since
0: my son had to listen to me go off on about in our conversations, who's a philosophy major, I was telling him, uh-huh. um, he's saying, Well, you know, faith can be absurd. Even Kierkegaard uses, and he talks about that example, and that you'd go kill your own son and God can disobey his own rules. Yeah. And I'm listening to all this, and it's okay if we disobey God's rules because he allows us to. And I'm, I'm thinking, It just rubbed me the wrong way. And since um, he had to hear my defense, you're going to have to hear it. So I know you're not Kierkegaard. Maybe Kierkegaard's going to roll over. But my thoughts, it initially came, every one of them was this, is that there's no place in Christianity for a leap of faith. Leap of faiths are for false religions and cults Mm -hmm. and everything where you just give up your own mind, reason, and faculties and believe Mm -hmm. something that is absurd. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And I talk to those people all the time who've done that. Right. And have come to reason. Scripture says, come, let us reason together. Those are God's words. He never has asked for a leap of faith. As a matter of fact, how I see faith that I can find in Scripture is we're given a portion of faith. Like we're given a little just enough to see what looks like absurd to everybody else. But we are able to see somehow the spiritual reality. That doesn't take a leap. We're given that faith. Then a second faith I see is if needed in whatever crisis, there's a gift of faith out there somewhere. Still Mm -hmm. not a leap. And then as a believer, there are steps of faith. But even then, Hebrews defines faith as believing in things you don't, based on evidence. Like faith is a substance of things hoped for, evidence of things not seen. Well, there's evidence. So what is the evidence? It's not a leap, there's some kind of evidence. Yeah, Hebrews itself talks about that Abraham story and says Abraham, you know, believed, he reasoned, it actually says, he Mm -hmm. reasoned, he didn't leave, he thought about it, and he's thinking through all of those things, like this seems like murder, this is against Jewish law, this is whatever, but then if he's reasoning, Jewish law also says that you can't uh, murder, you, God never changes. So immutability comes in. I think my thing is you can't teach immutability and then say there's a leap of faith because the immutability is that God never changes. He Mm -hmm. doesn't change his law. He doesn't go against his law and, or he'd be changing. Right. So the evidence is he reasoned that God could raise the dead. That's what Hebrew says. Mm-hmm. Abraham reasoned, God isn't calling me to murder him. He mm-hmm. must be able to have this guy live on. That's mm-hmm. the evidence that we can't see. That's a step of faith. It's not yeah. a leap of faith. And it's That's only true. faith, it's only faith in the mutability of God. So mm-hmm. based on the reasoned evidence of God's character, I will go through with this. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, he's a radical giving into a sacrificial cult demand by an unknown spirit that could be anybody. That's right. Yeah. So he does it and it turns out he doesn't have to do it. An angel tells him. Then you fast forward to the New Testament where the same thing. Oh, and And you already know this, but this is my soapbox. Right that before one. that story, a blood covenant was made where God actually made a covenant. And in those guys' minds in that day is that person keeps his promises or he must be killed and die. Like my life is that up. So God has to not exist if he breaks his own law. And his command that he promised was, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. You know, through your seed, all the world will be blessed. So that was part of his reasoning. God made a covenant with me. He's immutable. It cannot go back. This will not end in my son's death, Mm -hmm. even though I don't get it. And it Mm -hmm. didn't. Then you fast forward to the New Testament. God actually sacrifices his son for the good of all mankind. Mm -hmm. I think, yes, the old covenant and the new covenant, right, is that since that covenant partner in the Old Testament, Abraham said, yes, and I was willing to do it. Now God's Bound by covenant law to sacrifice his own son. Yeah. But he didn't send an angel to stop it. Jesus says, Don't you know I could have angels come and stop this? But this time that's not happening. It's the same story. Yeah. And when that sacrifice happened, um, we're given a portion of faith to believe that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And in my mind, as smart as Kierkegaard is, and I appreciate a lot of his thoughts on faith and um, Christianity, I think he really missed it there. I think he's, uh, immutability and a leap of faith are not compatible.
1: Yeah.
0: And that story is out of context. And what I don't like, which is my soapbox, is even people like my son or philosophy experts that if that's the part of the story you learn, Christianity sounds like a leap of irrational faith.
1: Yeah.
0: And I just told him on the phone last night, I'm the least person to ever want to spend my life with something I don't think is true, or I'm just guessing. I don't like religion. I don't like false teachers. I don't Mm -hmm. like people telling me what to do or what to believe. Mm -hmm. But I've at some point in my life been given that measure of faith to see something. Oh yeah, this is the end. That scripture also says, that once you see it and receive it, that you're, your spirit is given confirmation by God's spirit that this is true. Mm. You don't live in a perpetual state of, I hope this is true and I'm living on a leap.
1: Yes, right. Now,
0: it's foolishness to outside people, but the people who've experienced it, you have a knowing of 100% certainty. Not of all the doctrines and all what scripture says to understand it. Those are debatable. But that the essence of Christianity is true it yeah. is, is not a question. And if it is a question in somebody's mind, they need to then examine themselves to make sure yeah. that their election and calling is sure.
1: That's right. Well, oh, that's, that's all well said. I think that it's so debated what Kierkegaard means by some of those terms. But I think that you might find him as more of an ally than maybe he it seems or how it's presented sometimes, because yeah. some of that he's going to say the same thing, basically. Right. But but um, but there's a tension there because, you, you know, you did you did say, um, you know, for instance, it's foolishness to the outside. And so, and I think that's what Kierkegaard is trying to capture is that in some ways, if you, if you want to think about it from a secular perspective, there is elements of faith that you can't just reason your way to it all the way. Yes. But but once you're there, and this is where I think you're right, and I think Kierkegaard basically agrees, once you are there, it's not a perpetual leap, it's not a continual, is there... Um, you know, no reason for this and irrational nonsense all the way down. That might be cult like crazy sort of internal stuff. None of it makes any sense, but we don't care. That doesn't make sense. I think he thinks that once you do go there, you then make sense of everything in hindsight. So that, and that's what Abraham does, right? Because Abraham's trusting Hebrews tells us in God's promise that if he needs to raise Isaac from the dead, he will. Yeah. Okay. That is not something available to just human reason. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the Christian the faith is God because God is the God of the resurrection. And so you do know that it's true and that Abraham is ultimately placing his, his promise and trust in something uh true and real. But from a from the outside, as you say, that looks like foolishness. foolishness, And, yeah. and so I, I mean, Kierkegaard is saying some really like he's 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 on the very edge there. He's saying some, you know, controversial things on purpose. But going all the way back to the very beginning of this, you know, you 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 pointed out he's he's in a context of Christendom. The Lutheran state church is everything, and and he is worried that the people of his generation are just Christians by default. Yeah. And so it's the opposite of our moment, right? Because we're you're, we're in a moment where you want to point out like Christian faith is not irrational. Christian faith is not ridiculous. It, there, there isn't this leap. It's not into nonsense, but in his day, he thinks every it's Christendom. So everybody's Christian yeah. in Denmark. Everybody's Lutheran specifically, and so he's trying to prod his generation that he's among and say, um, "Are you have you really like you need to take a leap?" It's it's intentionally kind of radical language to say you need to get beyond just the cultural moment you're in and take a jump and make make sense of the world around you within totally new categories and, and stop doing it just according to the ethical Denmark way of living life. But let's start to live Christianly. So that's what he's trying to do. So, you know, we can at least appreciate that and then recognize where the language gets distorted um, and misused. If it's meant to say that Christian faith internally is irrational. I don't think he thinks that. Yeah. I think he thinks that it is irrational from Perhaps um, the outside.
0: Yeah, what he's talking about on a larger cultural scale, which goes on today all over the place, I see as what we call like PK kids uh, syndrome mm-hmm. is whether you're a preacher's kid or meaning, doesn't have to be a preacher's kid, but if you're second generation from someone who found true faith, doesn't mean you have faith. So you're raised in this environment, you're raised up to do's you memorize Bible verses, you know how to go to, how to behave in church, and you know others. And then by the time you're 18 or what, 19, you take your first philosophy class and you're introduced to whatever, and your atheist professor tells you that you're a bunch of dumb dumbs because you're just believing what somebody else ingrained in you, <clears throat> then you lose your faith and you never had it in the first place. That's right. That's pretty much what he's talking about um, culturally, and we still have it, is you live in a Christian country, you're Christian, you you're in a Christian community or a church and you're Christian as opposed to Christianity is a personal experience in right. a reconnection with God that doesn't happen on a corporate level. That's right. The corporate level are a bunch of those individuals that come together at times yeah, to celebrate right. their personal relationship.
1: You're exactly right. So if you could textualize Kierkegaard there, the, the language of leap of faith and paradox and absurd and all that, if you realize that what he's trying to do is awaken the Christians of his own generation and say um, that that actually makes more sense. Right. If you've got this complacent, yeah. non-reflective Christian who's just adopted it culturally, you get why you might want to go to that person and say, Abraham's about to sacrifice his son. Are you sure that makes any sense at all? Yeah. And it takes faith to say, well, of course it does, because God is the God of the resurrection. And if he had to bring Isaac back from the dead, he would. He's He's immutable. He's faithful to his promises. That is what you want them to conclude. But if they're in just sort of cultural Christianity, um, they, uh, they need that like um, antagonizing from Kierkegaard to kind of question, like, are you sure you i've made this are you sure faith is real for you are you sure you're thinking about it or have you just you know so it's antagonistic language and and i think it had a kind of missionary goal in mind Um, and we wouldn't want to press it as far as perhaps your concern is where it becomes irrational nonsense cult-like i don't think he would be on board with that at all yeah
0: well that's good (laughs) Uh, before we wrap up here you're of academic you're a very reasonable human being what leaves has led you at a point in your life to believe what some would say as a well a christian an unreasonable possibly absurd belief system as opposed to those academics philosophy experts that would go in a different direction
1: Mm. oh man that's such a good question. I don't know that I can do it any justice. Um, I mean, I think that because I, I could I, I it's if you're talking about me personally, you know, I am a bit I am more than just Kierkegaard. Um, and so there's there's more than just Kierkegaardian reasons that I have for for faith. I think there's a whole host of rational uh, arguments for the existence of God. Um, I think the question, why is there anything as opposed to nothing at all? is a really haunting one. If, if you're thinking about it from an atheistic perspective, it's just, how is there anything? And they're just, there's a lot of philosophical arguments for there, there must be a necessary being, there must be something that's the cause of all things behind all of this. Those are very strong arguments for there being a God. And, um, and then Kierkegaard has always taken me a bit further to say that not only are there good philosophical arguments, but at the end of the day, there's kind of two options, which is a very despairing kind of existentialism, where if you think about existence um, from a secular atheistic perspective, there's really nothing but hopelessness and despair at the end of that, because death is the end of the story. And so nothing you really do matters. And um, that, it's that or faith where everything now is full of meaning and purpose. And it feels like to me that aligns with our experience and the way the world actually works. And so, you know, those are, those are not the only arguments out there, but if you read Kierkegaard and existentialist kind of things, I think it makes a kind of argument for, um, one, you know, I think we all crave meaning. We all think that we're not just born to live absurd nonsense lives that have no purpose. And at the end of the day, that's kind of a sign that God made us, you know, as I love the beginning of the confessions where, where Augustine says, you know, our, our hearts are restless until they find rest in, in you. Um, And that is, that's the, that's, that experience is what I see everywhere. There's restless hearts trying to find God. And until they do, they are, in existential despair and questioning and anxiety. And when they do, they find rest. And there's an argument in there for um there being God and there being the gospel at the end of the day that makes sense of all of it. So that was a bit rambling, but that's that's where my right. mind is at these days.
0: Yeah. I think one evidence that you're in stage three of Kierkegaard's stages of human whatever on their path. Yeah. The contentment is that you have Craig as your name on the screen instead of trying to find meaning by adding all of your accolades. There's an essence there that you're content with where you're at as a human. And, I, and that only comes in what
1: Kierkegaard would say, stage three, I think. Right. I appreciate that.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you. Thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you, Ken, for having me on the show. Glad to yep. get a chance to talk with you about Kierkegaard. It
0: among the outlaws, he said, come follow me. People from all walks of life since have been becoming outlaws.